Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome to the Feelin' Film Podcast, listeners. I'm Aaron, and with me tonight for this discussion on a Miyazaki classic is my best friend and co-host, Patch. Hey, everyone. My Neighbor Totoro is one of those films that seemingly everyone either loves or just hasn't seen yet. And we were glad to see that our Facebook discussion group picked it for us to cover this week when we decided to forego seeing it chapter two. So without any further ado, we're just going to get right into it. This is your spoiler alert. We are going to talk about the movie in depth. If you haven't seen it, please rectify that. Don't be that person. Patrick and I both didn't see this movie until we were well into our 30s slash 40s. And I've learned via social media that we are not the only ones. So if you're out there and you're listening to this and you haven't seen My Neighbor Totoro, go find it, watch it, smile, and then come back and listen to this good conversation. Alrighty, buddy. Well... I know that this was your first time viewing. Uh, I learned that just a couple days ago, actually. Yes. I was mm-hmm. surprised. For some reason, I thought you'd seen it. Uh, I should have known better, but I didn't. And so I'm excited to find out what you thought about it. So will you kick us off with your one-word takeaway? I had a hard time coming up with a one-word takeaway, not because it was a bad movie by any means. It was not. But just I was trying to articulate to myself how I felt and I was trying to put into words, okay, what is this that I'm feeling? And as I was sifting through the internet for articles uh, for our conversation tonight to kind of get some insight to it, the word naturalistic came up from an article that I read. And I want to quote a little bit of it. It says, it's a completely naturalistic film driven by no consistent plot, but the emotional state of its central girls, from whose imaginations and feelings the entire film erupts around them. Maybe it's weird to call a film with giant creatures and cat buses, quote, naturalistic, but how else to account for a film that so patiently treats every variation in its character's emotional state, where kids rejoice when they find out a delightful fantasy was a dream, as if thrilled their minds could conjure such a scenario. So many animated films, including some of Miyazaki's, are busy, designed to keep their young, impatient viewers' attention. Totoro trusts that kids want a break and just to observe as much as grown-ups do. And for that, it is unmatched. To me, that description of the movie really does sum up how I felt about it. Because you could say that there's not a lot that goes on in the movie. That the reaction that these girls have to these fantastical creatures or the nonchalantness that is taken when it comes to these fantasy creatures is so just very subtle. It's like, oh yeah, there are these creatures in the woods and they look like trolls and cool. What can they do for us? But all these things that you would expect to be like wow moments are treated as very much natural. Like this is a part of our culture within the confines of the narrative. I remember reading that that Totoro, this character, is really as ubiquitous as Mickey Mouse is to our American culture, which, looking back on this, makes so much sense. Because as a culture, it would seem like the Japanese culture views this as just a part of their world. Totoro is just as much a part of their world as 
the big mouse is to ours. And that's played very much within the confines of this movie to these girls. They find these creatures and rather than freak out, they fully embrace these creatures and whatever mysterious purpose they have for their lives. But it's all in the confines of a story that doesn't have a mega plot. It's nothing that has to have any major events that take place. If you boil it down to a single line, it is this. Two girls and their father go live in the country to be closer to their sick mom. And that's what the story's about. And the adventures that take place there. But even the adventures aren't so elaborate that you need to go into great detail about them. But that's the beauty of it, Aaron, is the fact that a movie doesn't have to be big and bombastic and fantastic to be fantastic. It can be as simple as just telling a story and adding these really interesting elements to see how the characters react to them. That's really what I took away the most and what I enjoyed the most was seeing a naturalistic approach to something that could have otherwise been fantasy, which is not my forte. I don't really care for fantasy. So to see a movie like this do what it did really surprised me. Yeah, that's absolutely for sure. Uh, it's definitely got a naturalistic approach. It's set in 60 years ago in Japan and out in the country, and it does not feel like your typical fantasy story. Like, a, you know, I, I compare it all the time to Spirited Away. Like, the, com- the comparison of how different they are in the way that they present a fantasy world to tell a story. Well, my one more takeaway was pretty much my letterbox review from the first time that I saw this movie, and that is pure. This is what I have felt every time that I have seen this movie, even though I didn't discover it until far too late in my life. Sooner than you did, thankfully, but still far too late. And every single time that I've seen it, I come away with the same word in mind. I cannot think of another movie that has no antagonist, no evil, no scary thing in the dark that's lurking, no darkness before the dawn, which is something that Roger Ebert actually pointed out in his review, by the way, which is one of the best I've ever read. So if you're listening and you have not read Roger Ebert's review of My Neighbor Totoro, you should definitely look that up. It's out there on the web. The characters are just pure of thought and pure of action, and I think that that goes for the humans and (laughs) otherwise. And so the movie just leaves me with a very full heart and I watch it and I have this enormous smile on my face and I am bouncing in my seat at times and I'm singing along and humming along constantly singing Totoro Totoro and I mean it just it's so catchy it's like a jingle you can't get it out of your head and did I mention it makes me smile? Because it really, really, really makes me smile. And it's just, it's sweet, it's whimsical, it's funny, it's imaginative, and it's fantastical. Even though it's naturalistic in its approach, like you said, but it is fantastical. And it is a contender, honestly, for my favorite animated film, I think, ever. I just adore it so much. And there's nothing that is quite like the way that this story is told. And not even Miyazaki's own filmography much less the rest of the world's animation. Uh, so it's, it's very pure for me. 
Well, our first question for tonight that I want us to talk about a bit is just what do you think is the reason that this movie is so beloved, especially within Japan's culture, but for Americans, like why has it become so iconic? I look at my neighbor Toro and I see a friendliness to it. I feel like the title itself feel after you know what Totoro is, you come to realize that there's a little bit of irony in the title, my neighbor Totoro. When I think of a neighbor, I think of someone that I'm friends with, someone that I can be close with, someone that I would let borrow my lawnmower or that I would come over and watch their house while they're on vacation. And I think that the title itself speaks to the fact that I don't know how this is in Japanese culture, but there's a sense of optimism that exists when we have a neighbor that isn't quite like us, but that we can fully embrace. And I think there's a sense of friendliness that comes with that. When you see My Neighbor Totoro play out, that's what you get. You see characters who are in a mindset of discovery and wanting to find out more about this world that they're going to be living in, not just being adventurous around the country, but finding out more about the creatures that live there. And I think for a movie like this, I'd like to believe that Japanese culture kind of is a, is similar in that regard where it looks to the West and it looks around itself to see the beauty of otherness of things and people that are not like it. So Japanese culture looks around and it sees a world that is not like it, that it's this otherness, but it sees the beauty in that. And I think My Neighbor Totoro reflects that. Yeah, I would agree. I think that there is something about the design of Totoro that is just immediately comforting to us as viewers. He's very comparative to a Pokemon that is really loved called Snorlax, which is this big, gigantic, fluffy thing that just sleeps all day. It's huge. And it's got big claws. But all it wants to do is snuggle and sleep. And so you're taking this thing, this creature, that has these qualities of something you might consider to be scary or consider to be... I don't know, um, something you'd be afraid of, I guess, in general. Just you have claws on the character. He's gigantic. You're small. You're intimidated by it, I guess. That's the word I was looking for. And instead, said creature is very friendly and very sweet and very calming. And it just flips the idea on your head, on its head, that, that this thing you naturally would imagine is a monster. And it's not a monster. It's the opposite of a monster. And there's something that I think we just love about that plot twist in general. Um, there's very much a, there's very much a, an approachability. An there approach, is. Yeah. Yeah, there really is. It's, it's got a gentleness to it. And, you know, when May meets Totoro for the first time, we get to experience this whole exact sequence through her eyes because she's going in there and she comes upon him and it's just, here he is. Like, it's, it's mind blowing to me. The whole time I was watching it, my kids and I were 
like in shock or my kids were freaking like in shock, especially they were saying, you know, oh, you're going to get eaten. What are you doing? You know, because and, and they've seen the movie, so they were having fun with it. But when you look at the way that May's actions take place, our minds tell us that thing is not something that we should think is safe. And so then you take that thing and you turn it into something that actually by a twist will keep you safe. And it's easy to latch onto that. Absolutely. And it speaks to that irony that the title is reflecting that we don't expect a troll or a creature like that to be friendly in our minds. But the, the expression on his face, very blank, very much like a, just a blank stare. It's not a scary face. It's just a kind of naive, a youthfulness to it. Like he's just as curious as May is, but it's almost like the expressionless of his face creates that approachability because we don't know what he's saying. Even when she, when he says his name, she interprets it as Totoro, even though we don't necessarily know what it is. I mean, I'm assuming that she just kind of interprets it that way because that's what we end up calling him that. But as you watch him and you watch his family, I guess you could call them, their facial expressions don't show who they are. They don't show the emotion. All that stuff is driven by how they emote with other nonverbal cues, with the way they jump around and, when, and the way they move and the way they, they look at each other and the way they look at Mei and Satsuki. It is a very unique interpretation of a monster. And I think it's meant to challenge us as an audience because perhaps in Japanese culture up to that point, that's what the audience was used to. And that's what we're used to as an American audience. If it's strange, if we don't understand it, we immediately navigate to fear. And those contrivances were immediately dismissed in that scene that you talked about, which I think is just a wonderful scene. Because it's how I think as kids, we want to approach things that we don't understand. It's interesting to, to kind of see this in light of not watching It Chapter 2, because that's exactly the opposite of what we understand about. Good point. <laughs> and, and I think that, that Miyazaki does that with intent, maybe to say something deeper about reaching out to things that we don't understand and finding the best in them. But maybe it's, He's speaking about the innocence of being a child and saying, look, everything is pure, as you mentioned, until it's not, as opposed to thinking very cynically, everything is bad and it has to prove its purity. I mean, yeah, the simplest comparison that you're making is innocent until proven guilty or guilty until proven innocent as well. It's very um, much like that. And yeah, I totally agree. And that scene was almost both of our connecting points as well. Because we both loved it so much. It really is just incredible when you are watching her poking him and squealing with glee and she's completely not afraid. She just jumps up there on his big old belly and then they have a roaring contest. And I, I get, again, heart full. Like, I'm just like, this is amazing. I want a Totoro of my own to have a roaring contest with. And he's completely oblivious. He's just like, I just want to go to sleep. We just, just, I just want to lay here and go to sleep. Why are we doing this? <laughs> and 
Oh, he's so gentle and so sweet. And I think, I think the design helps. You know, it's so cute and it's so simple to draw. I mean, it's just a series of circles and triangles and it's not incredibly complex. So it's easily replicable. It's easy to merchandise. And I think all of those play into partly why it's such a big hit. And I think more specifically, it's easy for a child to draw, which I think is very much connectable to that young audience. My son tonight or today was on my computer and he had black and white line drawings of um, uh, Mario characters, Mario, Luigi, Bowser to, to color. And he had me bring up a colorized version of all these characters so he could use it for reference. But he's also been learning how to draw different figures using this really fantastic book, you know, showing you step by step here, draw the circles first and then draw the squares. And eventually you have like a car or you have a house or you have more complex objects. And there's something really magical, if I could use that word, about being able to recreate something that you love. And so I think when Miyazaki draws this character, he's thinking to himself, you know what? I want kids to be able to replicate him. I want kids to be able to draw him and connect in that way so that they can form their own discovery about who Totoro is to them. Maybe he has bigger ears, but those ears are very simple. They're triangles. And so they can make them huge or they can make them little. Um, his body is very much puffy and squeezable. And maybe he's huge or maybe he's smaller to them, just depending on how they want to connect with that character. And I think that makes Totoro as a character so much more than just a character. Like he is a neighbor to them. He is a friend and he can become a best friend the more they draw. And, and that's pretty, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, I would agree. Well, one of the things that is so unique that I mentioned in my one more takeaway even was the fact that there is no villain in this movie. There's not even a fake villain or a misunderstood villain. There is really no antagonist at all. Like, it just doesn't exist. And I wondered, how does this affect how we relate and connect with this film? Vice, our approach in going into movies that all have some sort of antagonist in them it's definitely an interesting approach and one that's risky because when you talk about storytelling you have a protagonist who starts out one way goes on a journey meets the villain meets the person or meets the thing that he or she is going to have to overcome and then at the end of that the final battle there's a new normal for the protagonist and i think this is a movie that without that obvious of a of an antagonist or villain it's not without conflict but not having that allows us to focus on the protagonists a lot more in this case the two sisters i do think there is conflict and that is their their sick mother because that's what moves what literally moves them into the country to help them discover these uh these characters is the fact that their mom is sick and they wanted to be closer to her. But I would probably, if I'm going to compare it to something, it would be something like I Kill Giants or A Monster Calls, where you have an internal motive that is causing 
you to go on this journey. And I think these two girls, because they moved to the country, they end up discovering these creatures that along the way help them learn, help them understand more about why they're there and what gives them purpose in this, this new setting. But at the same time, that's even a stretch because Totoro isn't the main character. Totoro isn't who they're necessarily seeking. All of this is, again, that nonchalantness about the fact that they're just living a life in the country and these creatures are a part of it, but they're not the part of it. And so what it does is it makes for a fresh kind of storytelling and one that I think is definitely rewatchable because you don't get that a lot. You don't get that very much at all. I don't think I can think of any other story that I've seen, any movie that I've seen recently or even the last probably five or 10 years that, that reflects that, that has a protagonist, but not an obvious clear antagonist or quote bad guy. Yeah, I don't either. And I think that that's a really interesting thing when you approach this film multiple times in your, your second, third, fourth viewings. I wondered about that and how you took it in the first time. If you were in the back of your mind waiting for the other shoe to drop, were you looking for the monster to emerge? Were you waiting for the mom to die to cause some sort of major pain that the girls would have to deal with and reckon with? Because I feel like that's what we do when we watch, especially American animation, like something's going to happen like that. And Toy Story 4 is a good example of why I put in there, you know, the fake monster, the fake antagonist twist, because there's there's a villain that's kind of in the gray area and ultimately doesn't actually do anything to hurt people, but kind of positioned in a way that you think they're going to do that. That doesn't happen even in Totoro. And... Because of that, I think for me going into it, these multiple viewings, I know what I'm going to get. I'm not looking for that at all. And I am able to just relax and go into it completely calm and ready to embrace it without wondering, is it ever going to get worse? And, you know, I, I don't know, man. I just, I feel like I take it the story differently. Then I took it the first time when I was expecting the mother to die, when I was expecting something awful to happen to May, um, you know, with her sandal in the pond, you know, like, oh, somebody took her <laughs> and there's a really evil person out there and Totoro is going to save them from said evil. But no, Totoro's not there to save them from an evil. Um, Totoro's are just there and they're just being a friend they are literally just being a friend because what happens the girls treat them with kindness and treat them with you know interest and attention give them attention and they see them having a desire that they can fulfill and they want to give it back and so they help it's just so refreshing to me i think um, what i don't think it would work these days either that's true. I, I think Miyazaki has done something with this movie that isn't replicatable, and that's giving permission for a movie to just be happy. More often than not, I think we look at movies, even from a from a critical point of view, from a critic point of view, 
we either dismiss a movie that doesn't have a bunch of depth as brainless or mindless entertainment that it's just surface level action or surface level comedy or whatever that if it doesn't have depth it doesn't mean it doesn't have value it's just different but it's dismissed as not as important or as powerful and there could be legitimacy to that but the other side of that is that it seems like today a movie's not going to be taken seriously if it doesn't have some kind of weighted conflict, if it doesn't have that wow moment where you're like, oh my gosh, I did not see that coming, or man, that's hugely impactful. And in some ways it could be very much dismissed as fodder or cheap or what other words you want to use to describe something that we don't need this cheesy optimism. We don't need these movies that, that show what the world could be because that's not real. And that bothers me because movies should be able to do that. They should have permission to say the world could be this and it's okay that it's not right now. And the movie's not trying to say we need to get to this place. A movie like this could articulate an emotional idea without necessarily articulating the reality. I'm not saying I want more of those. I'm saying that the world could be better because of more of these. And we, I guess we need more of those. So I guess there's a little bit of defiance in my, in my opinions because I'm going more movies should be like this, but only for the sake of being good movies that we should just enjoy watching to feel good. And that's not necessarily what I'm saying. What I'm saying is I think when movies exist that have this kind of message or they have this kind of feeling, they shouldn't be dismissed as being fake because they don't line up with the worldview that we have right now. They should be embraced because they have a different perspective. And it's a perspective that I think needs to be at least respected and tried to be understood. I would agree too. Uh, totally. Why do you think that Mei and Satsuki are not afraid of Totoro? Specifically Mei in the beginning when she is just relentlessly running off into the woods. I actually wrote something about, my gosh, like, dad, watch, find your children. Come on, man. Like, <laughs> do you pay any attention here? And why do you think that they're able to befriend him so easily? For Mei specifically, I think it's that childlike innocence that she doesn't have a filter that she hasn't experienced something in her life that is incredibly traumatic that taints her worldview. I'd like to believe that her reaction to Totoro is a direct reflection of the fact that she's had a good life so far. I don't really know how old she is. I want to say she's maybe seven, six or seven. Who knows? She's definitely, I mean, she's the younger sister. That's all I know. And that's all we know at this point. But I think the fact that she's able to go on this adventure, let's go on this discovery, shows that she doesn't have baggage. She doesn't have this past part of herself that makes her apprehensive about the world around her. Um, there's something very cool about when you're a child, you want to go on adventures and you want to discover. There's that Peter Pan mentality of not wanting to grow up necessarily and want to have all these different adventures. 
And I think that exists inside this, uh, this story. But I also think it has to do with the fact that she also wants to be her own person. She doesn't go to school. And so she doesn't have friendships with people. She doesn't have the burden of having to learn things. I mean, her dad, as you mentioned, just leaves her out in the field to just go hang out. You know, he, she's like, when's lunch? And he's like, you just had breakfast, go play. And she's like, okay. And then basically the whole day goes by and he's like, oh yeah, where did she go? That's but what I, think, I mean. It was terrible. It's like, it's like, what are you working on dad that you can completely distract yourself from your children? You're terrible. No, you're not. It's like, but I think for her, it's it's really more about the fact that she doesn't have baggage. She doesn't have these things that are affecting her perspective on life. So she can go through these moments where she's just looking and she's trying to discover and there's nothing holding her back. It's like that. I remember this is a weird analogy, but when I was younger, I remember being totally okay with picking up frogs. Like there's no problem I had with that. And I distinctly remember a period of my life where I, I saw a frog and I was like, I'm never going to touch those again. They're gross. And I, I remember reflecting going, wait a minute. I clearly remember there was a time in my life when that wasn't a problem. What changed? And the only, the only explanation I can think of is that I got older. I don't think there was a class that I took that said frogs are gross or that there was some movie that I watched that said frogs are evil. I just didn't want to ever pick up frogs again. I could say they're slimy. I could say they're gross, but it wasn't informed by anything other than the fact that I just got older. Yeah, I was going to actually make that same comparison. I can think of several things that I used to do as a child that when I see them done in movies or I see something in real life, and I think back to how I approached that as a kid with the freedom that I had as an elementary school and junior high age young boy. Specifically, I used to explore the heck out of culverts and, you know, sewer pipes. And I would just go crawling through them all through the city, like literally mapping out the city in these huge, enormous underground pipes. I would be terrified to go anywhere near one now, Patrick. And I, I don't know why. I don't know if it's because I've seen too many horror movies or what, but I would not come close to wanting to step inside one. But eight, nine, ten-year-old me was May, right? Like running through the forest, just boom, like, I don't care. I, you know, give me, I guess I'll take a flashlight if I have to, but there was no sense of fear, no sense of concern for what may or may not happen. And that's part of that is, critical thinking and learning the skills of planning and thinking about potential outcomes of your decisions. My son, who's even 14, doesn't have that down yet. Like he doesn't think about what might come from this certain choice that he's about to make. And so we're still trying to work on learning those things. But you're right. It's completely different now for adults. And I loved seeing a character, specifically May, who is just unapologetically her age. She's not having to deal with things in a way that a child like her wouldn't. She loves exploring. She has a vast imagination and we, and we see it be consistent. She is immediately drawn to these acorns that are falling from the sky, not sky, but from the ceiling. And she wants to discover wh why. And I remember doing that, Patrick. I remember wanting to climb up in the attic. 
if there were acorns dropping, I would have wanted to figure out where are those coming from as well. Not now. 40-year-old Aaron would be like calling the ghost squad to come in and go up in my attic before I actually opened the daggum thing because I'd be terrified of what might be in the attic. It's very just a different type of approach. She meets the soot gremlins, uh, the soot sprites, right? And she goes right after them. <laughs> and she tries to catch one, you know, like they look spiky to me. I'd be scared of them because like, what if I, what happens to Patrick if I, if I try to catch one and, it's, and, it, and it pokes me? May's brain doesn't compute those things. It's just, ooh, that's neat. That's different. I want to know what that is. I want to let my inquisitivity, inquisitivity, in curiosity flow and go find out. And with regards to the Totoros in particular, and transitioning, like still think are still thinking of this as you know, adult versus child. Are the Totoros real? Because there's one interpretation of this movie you could take and watch it with the idea all the way through that this is just something in their imagination. And they are creating the Totoros as a coping mechanism. Do you think that that's the case? Or do you think that these are real fantastical creatures that exist in their world? And honestly, either way, does it matter? Do they represent anything? I go back to A Monster Calls, and I think that you could make the interpretation that these are representations or coping mechanisms for their sick mother. But I can't make that connection. Like, it would be very difficult for me to try to connect those dots because the Totoros aren't doing anything that is in complement to their mom's sickness. They're not providing medicine they're not i mean they're providing companionship but we don't know enough about their relationship with their mom to think oh what their mom is lacking in the relation their relationship with her the totoros are making up there's this really interesting scene though where we find out later it's a dream they've got these these acorns that they want to they planted and they're trying to water and nothing's happening and at this one night the totoros are performing this <laughs> ritualistic dance that is just absolutely adorable. And the girls go out and start doing it with them. And all of a sudden these acorn seeds start blossoming. And then there's this big giant tree that grows up, which is just beautiful. There's this fantastic scene, the painted scene or whatever you want to call it of this tree that's covering their house. And in the, in the background, you see their dad again, working because he's a workaholic, apparently. But all this stuff is happening. And then the next moment you see them waking up, and they're not discouraged that it was all just a dream. They're encouraged because they go out and they see that the seeds are blossoming, blooming, whatever you want to call them. And then they start you know, re repetitively doing the dance again. I think that if the Totoros exist or if they don't, whatever their purpose is, it's not what we typically think it is. If it's a metaphor, it's not, I don't know that it represents anything that we would actually attach to. I think for the girls, if they are figments of their imagination, they represent an extension of their innocence. They represent this, hey, 
what if this happened? What would it be like if these creatures helped grow this tree? They would create this really cool dance. So I don't think it matters. I, I think that the Totoro's existence is not the important thing in this movie. I think it's the Totoro's relationship. It's that neighborliness that Totoro and his family have with these two girls and how it shows this beauty and this kind of coolness of being able to um, live this adventure with. So I think if they're real, great. If they're not, that's okay. I think the end result is that it's satisfying something with Satsuki and Mei that is making their hearts full. Yeah, I mean, they, they really do play it out, I think, like an imaginary friend. The dad never sees the Totoros. He looks for them with the girls, but of course, nothing is quite the way that it was when she was looking for them without him. They're not in the same spot. They're apparently comparative to a troll in this book that she was reading. So she's directly seeing something that she has seen in a piece of fiction already. And then the dad tells a little story. He says, you can only see the forest spirits occasionally. And people used to be friends with the trees. And I was thinking about that a lot because... There's a way to read that where being friends with the trees is essentially what the Totoros are, right? Just having this oneness with nature, treating it with respect, communing with it, um, and then considering any blessings that come as if they were coming from the trees. Or if those events, like you mentioned specifically with the plants that are growing, the giant tree that he makes doesn't stay. That doesn't stick around, right? That just poofs out of existence. But the plants grow. And so they believe that this little rain dance is now something that it works. And I think it ties in really well to what we see in all of Miyazaki's films, it appears, and in Shinkai's films, and pretty much most animation from Japan. A lot of it is very religious-heavy. And it's got these connections to ritualistic things. And this movie does too. And they treat these beliefs with a ton of respect. I mean, there's a really sweet scene where Satsuki and Mei end up taking cover uh, in a small shrine with a statue of some sort. And her reaction is to turn toward it and thank it for allowing them the opportunity to you know, to share the space out of the rain with it. So they continually show this great respect for nature and for the idea of these ritualistic traditions from their culture. And I think that it, any faith, you know, when you believe something and you're having that faith in this thing that exists, and something happens, we want to affirm that as a proof of what we believe, <laughs> because we want proof. That is a very human thing to what <laughs> is to know that what you think and what you feel is correct. And so we attribute 
these things to other things, i.e. the plans grew, so it must have been that Totoro that I danced with last night, even though I've never seen it. So I actually don't believe they exist. I think it is Totoro is an imaginary friend, and meant to be an imaginary friend, essentially, in this movie, especially when you consider what the girls are going through. Um, I also don't think it matters one lick whether they are real fantastical creatures, which is that an oxymoron, um, or fake ones. I think that it is just in getting to experience a childlike view of these creatures and interacting with them. Again, it's so pure and it's just nice to remember that we can act like that, Patrick, whether we're seven or whether we're 40, we can choose to approach life with the same type of attitude that may and Satsuki do, I think. And I think that we'd probably be a lot better off if we tried. Yeah, I think to a point we should, but there has to be some kind of balance. There has to be a realism that exists. I mean, for a healthy life, we can't have an all fantasy mentality and we can't have an all reality mentality. But I think my neighbor Totoro gives us permission to explore that as an audience, even though we're not seven, eight, nine, ten years old. And I think for those that are after seeing this, they can just be reinforced by its narrative and they're not weighed down by historical baggage. <laughs> and they're, they're just reinforced by the fact that, yeah, I love pretending that I have this imaginary friend. I love pretending that I can do these things that shouldn't be squashed as adults. What does that mean for us? That means that we should be able to tap into our childhood to be able to gain a different perspective about the world around us. Not that the world is perfect or the world is awful, but that the world is what we live in and our approach to it affects how maybe even how it runs and how we successfully navigate through it. Well, you touched on the fact that the girls are definitely different ages. Um, we don't necessarily know exactly how different. I would say May feels very akin to like a kindergartner right before school or probably around that, or what we would consider early school age in America. And then Satsuki to me, is like an early teen or, you know, very late elementary school, early middle school type age. So they're very different, which means they approach things in um, different perspectives from different perspectives. So how do you see the girls' differences in dealing with their mother's sickness? Do you think that it is affecting them differently? And particularly, what do you think that that does for us as an audience by giving us both Mei and Satsuki as characters instead of having this be about one child? Well, I think it reinforces the fact that the narrative itself isn't focused on the mom's illness, that it's just a part of the world that they're living in that does affect where they're living specifically, but it's not the plot point. 
for Satsuki, I think it gives her an opportunity to be mom to her family. You see a number of times when she's taking care of the cooking, she is reinforcing the mythos of these sprites to her sister saying, you don't have to be afraid of it. The way she speaks to her dad, the way she speaks to her sister is very much a motherly type of approach. And I think that comes from the fact that just like when you have a dad who leaves the home for a business trip or goes for a period of time, you have the son who is the quote man of the house, even if he's not old enough to pay bills or go to the grocery store, he's considered culturally speaking, the man of the house, the one who's in charge. And I think for Satsuki, Maybe that was given to her. Maybe that was kind of thrust upon her. But she reflects the maturity of her mom in as much as she can as a tweener. May, I think, is representative of what a pure daughter is, what someone who is hopeful, but at the same time very emotional about the situation and about the world that she lives in. I think it's what helps translate her approach to these Totoro's with such abandonment, the fact that she has a yelling contest or growling contest or roaring contest, whatever we're calling with this, I think there's a sense of abandon that she approaches life that is personified in how she interacts with the the Totoros. But at the same time, you also see that reflected in Satsuki with convincing, you know, with a with a sense of persuasion. She is the first time I think that May discovers the Totoro, she goes back and she tries to show Satsuki and her dad where they are and they end up not finding them. But eventually, Satsuki does. And just like I think an older kid who has gone through a period of life has to be convinced through experiences I think Satsuki reflects that through May's le- uh, leadership or her persuasion. It reminds me a lot, honestly, of the Polar Express. And at the end of the book, at the end of the movie, the the narrator says, at one time, all of my friends could hear the bell, but its sound slowly faded for all of them. Even my little sister could no longer hear its sweet sound. But it still rings for those who believe. And I think that that's kind of how these two sisters are living in this world. May hears the bell straight up. Satsuki needs some convincing because she doesn't necessarily believe this, even though she's kind of giving May um, a little bit of support here. But eventually she comes around. And so I think for both of them, they're kind of Satsuki's on the verge of being an adult, so she's reflecting that, but she's also kind of holding on to her childhood, whereas I think May reflects the pure childlike wonder that is what it means to be a kid. Yeah, I would call May's approach naivety to some extent. They are looking at this and acting the same outwardly, most of the most of the film, of course, but Satsuki, I think, has the understanding and has the knowledge of she drops it later on. She talks about, you know, listen, this has happened before. 
And last time they just said mom had a cold and she wasn't coming home. And, and I know where this is going. But she presents optimism and she wants to portray that to help her sister, I think, and to just generally be a positive family because they all are excited about getting their mom back. I love how connected the girls are to their mom and how we learn about it. I think there's so much great subtle storytelling. Early in the film, we learn about Satsuki when she meets her mom for the first time, or we see her mom for the first time, and she's telling her mom how she wants her hair to look just like hers. It's in a very admiring situation. Um, and later, when she is trying to keep it together when May has left. Um, she is really just concerned about how she appears in front of May. You'll see her on the phone with tears starting to form in her eyes, and then you can see her steal her resolve and pinch them back and go about her business. And I loved seeing this really strong young woman that was trying to like I think you said this earlier like trying to fill the role of the mom in some ways while their mom wasn't present and then with May she's just so naive she she doesn't know any better you know for her she's told that mom is sick and mom's going to be coming home and it's going to be fine and so she's going to believe that and then in the back of her mind she has that knowledge of what's happened in the past. And I think that there is that fear for her. There is that missing of the motherly character, which is why I think she goes crying her way to get to Satsuki at school that day with Granny. Um, she needs Satsuki to relieve her when she does have those moments of missing their mom. And so... Uh, it's a really great dynamic to play out. Uh, it also gives us the opportunity to see what, at first glance, almost feels like a single dad. It actually was surprising to me how long it took before they brought up the fact that the mom was sick and that they were moving to the country because of that. I, the dad seems almost like a single dad for the early part of the film. And there's this really sweet slash creepy scene where they're getting in the bath together. And part of me is like, wait, why are they doing this? It's a cultural thing. Okay, it's the 50s. I'm going to let it go. Because what I get out of that ultimately is just incredible exuberance and a joy. And it really made me happy to see this family together. This father that is engaged in his kids' lives. He's wanting to know what's going on with them. He's talking to them about their curiosities and to some extent, encouraging them to go exploring and wanting to be a part of having fun with them. And he could be really down, you know, and we could see a completely different father. And I feel like we see a different father a lot of times portrayed because we want to, our films or our stories tend to want to give us a darker side of a character or somebody, something to overcome, right? Like that father isn't handling it the best way. And through the power of love, he decides and realizes that he'll treat his daughters the way that he always should have and that he loves them. You know, this is just a dad that just gets it from the beginning and it is really, really nice. And I love 
seeing the way that Satsuki writes her mom this letter to the toward the end as well. And she starts it and she says, we had a weird, mysterious, spectacular day. And she tells her mom in these letters about all the days that they've had that their mom wasn't with them. And it's a great representation of what it's like for parents to be without their kids for a long period of time, whether it's for illness or whether it's for work. I don't know. It hit me really hard because I've spent six months at a time away from my kids and I've done it when they were vastly different ages. And so I've, I've gone through a period where I've had a Satsuki who wanted to be in contact with me and wanted to actively tell me about their day and their experiences. And I've had that toddler who was just like oblivious to the fact that I was that gone. You know what I mean? Until one day when it hit them and they were like, no, I'm going to run across the country with my corn to give you dad. But I got it. And I, I think that this film captures those two distinct perspectives so well. And I know I'm rambling, but like it's just so perfectly relatable in a way that is pure. And it makes you wish that if you were going through this, these are the type of results you would experience, right? Like you would hope that you would have a Satsuki and you completely understand having a May. There's nothing wrong about the way that May acts. And I just really, really enjoy that about both the girls. It may be a bit autobiographical for Miyazaki. I don't know enough about his life to, to make that assumption, but it wouldn't surprise me if he had children or if he was a Satsuki at one point or a May at one point and his dad or his mom was gone for a long period of time. And so he's able to kind of draw from that experience uh, because this does feel very real. It feels very much like, yeah, this is what it's like to have kids that you're away from for a long period of time. I haven't experienced that. I've been gone from my family for at most maybe two weeks. And we've been away from my son for as long as like three weeks because of other family issues. But um, he's been more of a May than a Satsuki because he's enjoyed where he's been and, and the people that he's been with. But I think this could be somewhat autobiographical because of how authentic it does feel. Yeah, that wouldn't surprise me in the slightest either. And, you know, I was talking about optimism just now, and I feel like it's a running thread kind of throughout the whole movie. Optimism, hope. How do you think that this film plays with that today versus in its original setting. So not necessarily when it was released in the 80s, but the film is actually taking place in post-World War II Japan in the 50s, which is the same time frame as Grave of the Fireflies. But this is a completely different tone and approach than that film. So how do you think that the optimism in this film works today and does it make the way that we view the world and the way that we live in it any different i think it's difficult to a difficult pill to swallow in today's world i think it feels overly naive i think it, i think this movie could be interpreted as may on steroids <laughs> where it is 
all about the goodness and the no problems of life. If you hadn't brought that up, I wouldn't have known that this is post-World War II Japan. I would have thought that this is just a little bit of slice of life, that this is just the story of these girls and their dad and their sick mom. And I'm kind of glad that I didn't know that because I wouldn't have put that umbrella of history on that and tried to make an interpretation. I think that's intentional for Miyazaki because he didn't necessarily want to say, hey, look, while the history of Japan and what's going on could affect the lives of these girls and probably did in any other setting, that's not the story I'm telling. I'm telling the story of these two girls, not how they're reacting to the world around them. In some ways, it reminds me of The Book Thief, where the the story takes place inside Nazi-occupied Germany, but that's not the story that's being told. It's about a girl who steals books, and the backdrop is familiar, but it's not the point. So when you look at a movie like this, you don't necessarily focus on the fact that it is taking place in this realistic time period. You're more focused on what is happening specifically on the boots on the ground type of narrative. It doesn't have to reflect what's happening around these girls because that's not really important. And I think that's reflective of what life is like for a lot of folks that the life of someone who lived in the 50s in the U.S. wasn't necessarily centralized around the war that we were participating in. Yes, it did affect a lot of Americans, both at home and abroad. But I would imagine that there are families that were just living their lives and trying to make money and support their families. And there were baseball games on and there were things that were happening that were still normal, and I put that in air quotes, that aren't necessarily reflected on because that wasn't the big event. So when I look at a movie like this compared to Grave of the Fireflies, I think that the approach is let's not focus on the events that are taking place that could affect these people. Let's focus on these folks and their effect on their world instead. It's very introspective as opposed to extrospective we're making up a lot of really interesting words tonight this is really fun but i i think the optimism would be very difficult to to have today because we have a world that's very cynical in fake news and me too and all these things we put our own interpretation and our own spin on every movie that exists now that's coming out and that existed 15 20 years ago i think about Blazing Saddles, Mel Brooks's satirical comedy. And I see it played on cable and half the jokes are cut out because of the fact that it's incredibly offensive. But that's the point of it. It's supposed to be incredibly offensive because of the fact that it is poking fun at racism. Let me, let me back up. It's not poking fun at racism. It's poking fun at the fact that racism exists and we don't recognize it. And it's very much satirical and it has a specific point just like stand-up comedy and the offenses that are taken by folks from a stand-up comedian like dave chappelle have to be taken in context of who he is that's a whole different discussion but what i'm getting at is we put our own interpretation on movies 
and based on the context of the world we live in. And I think when we look at My Neighbor Totoro, it could be considered something that is a little bit vanilla, a little bit too lighthearted for our taste, that it needs to have some kind of deeper meaning and maybe something that's cutting. And that's sad because it doesn't. It absolutely does not. And as I mentioned before, I think it's a movie like this that we need probably now more than ever, not to put us in a dream state or to say, let's just escape for a little bit, but to show us that there is a different perspective. And that perspective can be good and invaluable in its positivity. Yeah, I would agree. Positivity is the word for me. Optimism, hope. They're all kind of synonymous here. But it's definitely showing us characters who do not wallow in their sadness and who take steps to prepare for the best outcome while not fully letting it control their lives when there is something that is not going the way that they may desire. And I do think that there is a place for that in the world. And I think that it's very different. I think that it would, it feels very jarring just to watch this one now today. And it's because we don't see a lot of stories quite like this. Um, there's definitely feel good stories out there, heartwarming stories, um, stories about people who overcome challenges usually. But I think that this is a good story for, I like slice of life stuff because it, doesn't necessarily have that big conflict to fix. Um, specifically because I'm a fixer and I like to see a problem and correct it, whether it's my problem or whether it's something that someone I care about is facing. I just want to be there and I want to fix it, fix it, fix it. And I like seeing characters just live in a world and react to their surroundings and try to have the best day they can have each and every day. <laughs> it's inspiring to me, honestly. And I see a lot of courage in these characters. That is really appealing. Um, I see compassion in a lot of characters in this film. The granny is very compassionate. Uh, Kanta, to some extent, is, <laughs> is just, he's, he's totally smitten with Satsuki. But, you know, he gives away an umbrella and the girls are thinking about their dad and they taking an umbrella to the bus stop for their dad because they don't want him to get wet on his way home. There are these little things that happen in everyday people's lives that I don't think we see in movies. And it allows us to get a picture of characters that are more fully realized, I think. I hope that makes sense. What I'm saying is, you don't necessarily see all these little sweet things that someone might do during their daily summer day or whatever. Because you're focused on only scenes that drive a major plot forward, and usually with a conflict. So they've got to be big and impactful. And when you get to take this slice of life approach, it just reminds you that people are making decisions about being compassionate and being courageous and whether or not to explore their curiosity 
on a daily basis, on an hourly basis. And I find that really, really sweet. It's really fun to be able to infer optimism from the little bits that we see that we can almost trust these characters and their purity and their approach to how they relate to each other, how they relate to their dad based on these small moments that we can trust that we don't think that there's any kind of ulterior motive to what they're doing that we can based on two or three little moments, we can say, you know what? That's really how they are. They really do care about their dad. And as awkward, even though I know it's culturally appropriate as that bathtub scene was, it was also very sweet because they all trusted each other. And that intimacy, I think is something that can be lost in today's culture because we don't think that that exists. We don't think that that can be reflected on the big screen in a way that is believable. We either think it's trite or we think it's fake or we think it's a message that's trying to be pushed as opposed to saying, nope, this is how people actually are and this is how they can be. Well, the last thing I wanted to mention before we get to connecting points is on the technical side of this. There are definitely plenty of incredible computer animated Disney and Pixar uh, and stop motion animated Leica films out there. But hand-drawn animation like this is becoming more and more rare. And I personally have many favorites that are hand-drawn Disney classics or Studio Ghibli pictures or Makoto Shinkai films. What do you think is different about how we connect emotionally, because that's what we do here, with a film based on its animation style? And do you think that hand-drawn animation, which for decades and decades and decades of animation existence was all there was, will ever make a comeback or has CGI, for the most part, pretty much killed it forever? I think there's a different kind of beauty to hand-drawn animation that is reinterpreted when you get into the digital realm. A few years ago, I was working on a project with some of my coworkers, and we were trying to decide in telling these stories for a um, crew resource management course, uh, we were going to draw these case studies of plane accidents, things that are very familiar. The Pan Am, there's a big Pan Am crash with KLM that happened back in like, I think the 1970s. Anyway, and we were trying to figure out how do we actually visualize these things? And we were going to use 3D. We were going to use like 3D renders of aircraft and put in little avatars in these seats. And there were just going to be stills. And as we were storyboarding, the drawings that were coming out of those, as raw and sketched as they were, became the drawings that we would use in their final form. Of course, they were fleshed out a lot more. And the reason why is because when you have hand-drawn art, your audience is able to make interpretations based on the drawing. They can make a lot more inferences. For instance, when you have a cockpit that's full of these sketched out characters, you don't have to show all their facial expressions. You can show maybe one in the foreground and that expression based on that combined with the narration that's being heard allows your audience to infer that, oh my gosh, there's something bad happening on this airplane. 
And I think when it comes to hand-drawn animation, we're getting the freedom to interpret more based on what we see. Because as we mentioned before, Totoro does not have any facial expressions at all, I don't think. At least I didn't remember any. And these these girls have your standard four or five anime expressions. But that's not all that's going on. We see these really great painted landscapes. We see um, how detail is taken, not necessarily in small, like, artistic ways, but in the way the whole composition of a scene is laid out, particularly in the, the bus stop scene, that we're able to take in a beauty of that. And there's something about, there's a fine artness to it, where when you go to a museum and you see a composition, a still composition, and it does something to you, I think that happens when it comes to hand-drawn animation, where you and I have said with Shinkai stuff particularly, you could pause almost any frame in his movies and put that up on your wall or in the digital world that we live in, ironically, <laughs> put it on our computer desktop because there's something about the fine artness of hand-drawn animation that makes us feel something very emotional. <laughs> is that, is that a, is that a redundancy? I don't know, but it's different than when you have something like Pixar that is beautiful to look at and it's really cool to see these facial expressions. And that's part of why you have to do things digitally is to create those little intricacies. It's a different kind of appreciation. Whereas I think hand-drawn animation is more artistic and more on the fine art side than something like Pixar or Disney animation, which is getting more into the smoothness, the more very intricate details of facial expressions and movements that um, it's just different, but I think it's more appreciated on the emotional side with the uh, hand-drawn animation. Yeah. I mean, I, I would agree. Uh, I think your reasons that you were getting at there are spot on. It's, it's definitely more of an artistic feeling portrayal of your images. It looks like you're in a museum looking at paintings by Van Gogh or whoever, um, you know, these, these great landscapes that almost look watercolor-esque at times with a lot of, with a lot of the Studio Ghibli, at least, hand-drawn animation. There's also something I just think that is more inviting. The Pixar and other CGI animated films are so crisp and sharp that it moves them into unrealistic territory, which is really weird to say because, like you said, with the anime facial expressions of the girls and the characters in something like Totoro, I mean, that's not realistic, right? That's not how people's face actually works or their eyeballs. But the softness and the color of their skin and the way in which they just move and interact with the environments around them. There's a great scene in Totoro where Satsuki has gone to ask Totoro for help because she doesn't know what else to do. She says he's at the last place she could go and she wants to find May. So the cat bus comes and when she steps into the cat bus, she sinks and the fur, the way the fur starts to come up over her leg and it, you just, you feel like you're her 
and you actually could feel the fuzziness of the cat bus, right? (laughs) I don't get that sense with Pixar movies. I get visual spectacular and wow factor and oh my gosh, look at how amazing that computer animated generated image is, but I don't get wow, that image is evoking strong emotions from me. And so I miss hand-drawn animation quite a bit. And I think this is part of the reason why all of the Disney classics are still holding up for me so well, as opposed to some of the newer films. Story can be great, but when you have a different animation styles, it affects how you take those in. And I think that for the most part, um, you can't deny the love and effort that has gone into the hand-drawn informa- you know, animation. It's personal in a way that using a computer to enhance even actual drawings that are made by human hands can't quite match. And I think that eventually that we will have a sort of resurgence in hand-drawn animation from a nostalgic perspective. I think like we've seen recently with remakes and remasters in both the video game world and the movie world, eventually people are going to be like clamoring enough that some studios will start doing some hand-drawn animation. You know, sort of cycle will shift, but I don't think it will ever be the norm again. And, you know, we just have to hold on to and cherish the ones we have, I guess, because it's going to change. Absolutely. Stay, stay changing even more. Absolutely. Well, last up, let's discuss our connecting points, the part of that show where we talk about that one big moment that we emotionally connected to the most. And you and I both picked the same two scenes in particular. And so we already mentioned one of them and we saved one of them for the connecting point. And Patrick, since you have just seen this movie for the first time, I'm going to let you kick us off with your thoughts. So the bus stop scene is equal to May's initial meeting with, with Totoro. And the reason why I think both of those are equal has to do with the fact that <laughs> there's not a lot of dialogue. There's really more of watching these things take place. So I'll focus specifically, since we've talked about Maze and Encounter with Totoro, the, the bus stop scene looks like a lot of fun. It's something you want to participate in as part of this, this audience. You want to be there. And you want to, it's almost like a comedy scene that's taking place. Like almost like something from, from Saturday Night Live, only not as crude. Um, when I, when I look at this, I think I'm watching these two characters. I'm watching Satsuki holding her sister on her shoulders and she's got this umbrella and Totoro comes out and is just standing there. She gives him the umbrella and then he does something that is surprising. He acts like a six-year-old because he feels these heavier raindrops come on his, on his umbrella, realizes where they're coming from. And like my six-year-old says, you know what? I'm going to do that again. And I'm going to do it again. And he continues to jump to allow all the heavy raindrops to hit him and Satsuki on their umbrellas and just cause this massive spontaneous rainfall. I think that that reflects childlike innocence and the ability to enjoy 
a piece of life without having the pessimism of the world on you. My wife and I, and I don't know if it's a reflection of me watching this movie or just kind of what's been on my mind lately, but we were in the mall today and my son and I were going to get something at a store while she was um, at another store and we went up the escalator and there was a part of me that said, you know what? I'm probably going to get in trouble for this. But I started going down the up escalator and saying, hey, Carson, look, I'm standing in one place. And he thought it was hilarious. And sure enough, he does it again when my wife is with us. And she's like, Carson, you're not supposed to be doing that. And I'm like, oh, I love it, babe. He's doing that because we were doing it earlier. And she didn't give me any dirty looks, but I imagine she was thinking about dirty looks. But these are things that I miss. These are things that I think are hilarious and they're fun. And I enjoyed that one moment when I got to be a kid doing something completely stupid with my six-year-old who had a blast with it. And it wasn't about being right or wrong. It was about being able to have the freedom to just enjoy the moment. And I think that this particular scene at the bus stop reflected that because what we see is this unexpectedness that happens when the bus, the cat bus, we don't know that it's the cat bus when it comes up. We think it's the regular bus and suddenly it's coming in and we're like, what is going on here? And then this cat bus shows up and we're like, oh my gosh, this thing just got nuts. To me, that is a reflection of the imagination of a child. And being able to expect the unexpected and enjoy that and fully embrace it so that when Totoro gets on the, the bus and steals the umbrella, apparently, it's not a problem for Satsuki and May. It is just a part of this experience that they are enjoying. And I miss that. I miss being able to have that kind of freedom to just enjoy the moments and not have to worry about the things that may be considered consequences or the things that may get me in trouble. So getting to experience that for a couple of minutes on an escalator in the mall today reminded me that that was my bus stop. And it was great to be able to be with my son doing that. Yeah, it's a great story. It's very comparable. And I like that a lot. I'm, I'm the terrible person who would be like, stop bouncing in the rain. Stop it. You're going to get me wet. And I have lost all joy in my life. And so I think that's why I love this scene so much is because you're right. It reminds me that I used to be like that and that my kids are still like that. And I shouldn't be snapping at them or freaking out when they want to have fun. Um, and to, uh, there's something special about watching it take place from this big, huge, cuddly, monster creature thing right that is different than if you watch the same scene with just the kids and i love everything about this whole scene first of all it's just iconic the shots of totoro standing there with his leaf umbrella that is still on his head by the way he never takes it off it's great because it starts off you know and he's getting this leaf like covering this tiny patch of his head and the drop is just pinging on his nose over and over and over. And he's like looking at it like, okay, this is annoying. <laughs> is this ever going to stop? He's just dealing with it. But it's so iconic, that image. Like it is a very, very 
replicated one. You see it all over pop culture. Um, I think it is something that most people know whether they've seen this movie or not. It's what they think of when they think of Totoro. And it all started because the kids, like I told, said earlier, they're taking this umbrella to their dad at this magical bus stop because he forgot his. And they're, they're doing something for their father. And I love that. And I, and I love that when they give Totoro the umbrella, that they are doing something for him and not expecting something from him. And if he really is real, if he really is a forest spirit, his life revolves around people wanting things from him, people praying for this blessing or that blessing for a bountiful harvest. And here are kids that they don't want anything from him in this moment. They just want to help him out. Right. And of course it's fun. Um, him giving new meaning to the words, make it rain. And I think what just consumes me the most though, is the emotion on his face, the excitement, the depiction of him seemingly learning and discovering what this thing does all at once it's genuinely uplifting and it's inspiring and it's incredibly incredibly memorable because of all of those things and emotionally connecting because of the reasons you said and because it makes me think about how i want to have more fun in the rain and how I should be more willing to give an umbrella to someone in the rain and all of these things all at once in this one scene. Um, it's just, it's really, really brilliant. And then of course, you know, we get the cat bus introduced, which we haven't even mentioned. So that's part of it too. When the cat bus shows up at the end of this scene, it's like the cherry on top because I'm just like, is that a cat with eight legs and rats as headlights and taillights? Because, oh my gosh, that is amazing. Um, and, and why just, not? Right. And I'm here for it. And it's just perfect. And, and, and you're right. They totally do steal the umbrella. That's one thing that I guess goes against the imaginary friend theory theory. That's the word I was looking for. Yeah. Is that the umbrella never comes back. We never see it actually reappear. I don't think so. It had to go somewhere, I guess. Maybe she never had it. <gasps> Maybe they that would, well, that would ruin my whole, like yeah. giving them praise for taking an umbrella for their dad thing. <laughs> There's also a cute little frog in this scene that seems to just be sitting there judging Totoro, which I think is hilarious because it's representative of, you know, people that would be looking at him or looking at you if right. you're on an escalator going, <laughs> dude, stop. And that's what the frog looks like. It's like, what are you doing right now? It's the reason uh, I don't so touch yeah. frogs anymore. <laughs> the- hey, tying it all back together to the beginning. I love it. <laughs> yes. So iconic bus stop rain scene is our connecting point. We both love it so much. And that's also why it is the graphic image for this episode. And that pretty much wraps this one up, Patrick. Yep. And coming up this week, we have a brand new FF Plus covering a couple of new releases, as well as our thoughts on the recently watched and definitely enjoyed HBO series Barry. So you don't want to miss that. And then we head back to West Texas in high school football, talking about the 2004 film Friday Night Lights. I know I'm really excited about that. Aaron, thanks for another great conversation, my friend, and we'll talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. 
A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at Film, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filmed.